to our next edition of Leaders for Humanity. And Antoinette and I are uh, both super excited to have two guests with us tonight who bring true positivity into not only the science of um, organizational behavior and, uh, and management, but also the practice of it. And it's therefore with a great, great pleasure that I would like to welcome Jane Dutton and Monica Werlein. Um, thank you so much for joining from the US. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting us. It's a great pleasure. And I, I have to say, this uh, notion of positivity, uh, especially Jane, and reading through many of your articles has really stuck with me. I think in one of your articles, you said you're trying to bring fun back into organizational research. And I think that is certainly something that um, we have been missing throughout many of the homework reading that we had in the previous uh, kind of um, editions. So I'm looking very much forward to seeing that play also in the session today. But in the usual fashion, I want to just briefly introduce the flow. Let me see if I can bring it up. So we will very quickly set the scene in terms of what our good organization inquiry is all about. We will then properly introduce Jane and Monica, and then we will go into the dialogue. And today it's going to be very much centered on positive organizational scholarship and the transition from suffering organizations, as Antoinette is always saying, suffering machines to flourishing to positive organizations. And we are intrigued by some of the research that has been building up over the last 20, 30 years in, in that area. So how does it all link? Our good organizations inquiries focused on, on um, three big questions. The first question is, what is good? And how can we enable better organizations where especially the organizations become good actors in society and the constellations in the relationships and communities that they play a role? How can they enable collective flourishing of the members of the organization itself? And how can they become breeding grounds for individuals in the way that they develop and lead a good life as members of those organizations? And here again, I think in one of um, Jane's papers, she's writing that um, our work identities are probably the most important identities that we have in our lives because we're spending, I think uh, one quote was more than 100,000 hours on average in our organizations and um, um, over 70% of our waking hours in many times, many cases are spent at the office in the office. So the question of how can we flourish at and through work is really what drives this inquiry that we've started um, now, I think Antoinette six, seven months ago. Um, and with that, I would say nothing else to say about the inquiry as such, only that we are trying to in, in, in engage many um, wise leaders who can bring both experience in terms of theory and practice into a dialogue to understand how we can um, create practical interventions in organizations in these difficult times that we are to make uh, the life better for people within and for society at large. And with that, I would say, Antoinette, over to you for a proper introduction of Jane and Monica. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'm really excited um, and very thankful to be able to present two great women because they have been an inspiration to me and because we need to have more female role models in today's world. 
So Jane Dutton is an extraordinary scholar. She's Professor Emerita of Business Administration and Psychology and co-founder of the Center for Positive Organizations at Michigan Ross. She has published over 100 articles, co-edited or wrote 15 books, but what really makes her a role model to me is that she courageously changed her way at the turn of the century, if I may say so. She decided to become what we now term an engaged scholar. That meant leaving her trajectory of highly successful, but pardon me, quite restricted strategy research to embrace a lens which she called briefing life into organizational research, but also very much so into organizations. Ever since, she has contributed to our shared aliveness with insights on thriving, on positive identity, on high quality connections, on compassion and many things more. We will deep dive into this horn of plenty, hopefully in this interview. And I'm as excited to uh, welcome Monica Warlein, which has gone even a step further towards bridging academia and practice. Looking at her accreditations, when she was still a full-time scholar, she must have been one of the rising stars each US faculty would snub away in an instance. Starting her academic trajectory around the time the Center of Positive Organizations was starting, she concentrated on virtuous individual and organizational capacities, for instance, on courage and compassion. But she then, in my opinion, bravely found ways to raise her impact. She's still working in research as an executive director at the Compassion Lab, as a scientist at the Stanford University Center of Comp for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. But she has also established her own company and live and work, I love the name, that teaches businesses and others how to tap into courageous thinking, compassionate leadership, and the curiosity to bring their best work to life. Wow, so really two great women. But as usual, if somebody else is doing the introduction, always something is missing. And we learned that um, Monica always would like uh, to go first. No, not would like, but is nice enough to go first. That's I have to put it correctly. And so I just wanted to give you the opportunity to present yourself behind the headlines. If you would have to present yourself, what would you say about you, Monica? First off, I would just say thank you, Antoinette, for narrating us in that beautiful fashion. I found myself laughing and getting tears in my eyes at your rendering of our story. So it's very moving to put it together in that way. And very moving to have it recognized in the way that you named that the breaching of the boundary between the university and the world isn't always an easy thing to do, but it is an important, I think, uh, absolutely necessary thing that some of us do. And one thing I would say that I've learned by doing that for a while now is that there's a way to do it that honors the wisdom and dignity and integrity of people doing deep important research and people engaging in um, serious demanding practice um, and our, our job when we try to stand between the two and join hands together is to not oversimplify or diminish either of those but try to um, 
raise the conversation um, in some kind of way. And that, I think, is, is the, the magical thing that can happen in the conversations like the one that we're going to have today when they're prepared with the care that you offered. So that's what I might add about my own story. The other thing that I'll say as I pass to Jane is that um, the relationship that I have with Jane and the the colleagueship, the friendship, the um, shared, you know, <laughs> sisterhood of engaging in these ideas is one of the most important of my life. And I, I am so deeply grateful for it in ways far beyond what I can express. So I'm happy to go first anytime Jane asks me to go. Oh, gosh. Thank you, Monica. Um, ditto, I would say, too. And, and, and I will say that um, Monica, from the time I met her as a doctoral student, has always raised the game for me, always called me to a higher standard, I would say, on every dimension. And I feel like I've grown so much as a person and a scholar um, through my connection to her. And I, if I were going to narrate my, I also want to thank you for the wonderful introduction. It's really hard to do to um, put 40 years into a really compressed set of set of points. So um, thank you for doing that. Um, I just would add that um, my entire time in this uh, profession, I would guess, say has been collaborative. I don't feel like I've done ever done this work alone. I've always done it deeply enriched by the people I'm working with, a lot of them uh, doctoral students who just gave me space and aspirations to grow as a, as a scholar. And I think I would never have been courageous enough to make the turn that I made away from kind of this, the work that had gotten me tenure and all that stuff towards asking much bigger, harder questions if I had not been in, the, in a holding environment with my doctoral students, actually. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention is um, the good fortune of actually being thrown into a strategy professor job with ever not ever having taken a strategy course. And I was forced to teach the core strategy course and educate myself on that view. And it's very much a part of how I think about things. Um, I moved away from strategy because um, I didn't care as much about elites and organizations as I cared about people who were might be considered more on the bottom rung of, of organizations and were really outside the conversation of strategy. Um, but I think that when we talk about what positive organizational scholarship is about, at the base, it is about organizations um, achieving sustainable excellence, you know, in in their context that we could talk about their markets, their communities, whatever. But what I feel like positive organizational scholarship has done is sort of fused that quest for understanding what is it that creates sustainable excellence in life and organizations with really seriously considering the full range of humanity in an organization uh, rather than just elite or quote unquote strategic decision makers. So I would just put that in as part of the context um, for the work that um, I've been passionate about. Oh, it's beautiful. And I would say that what you all are doing 
is taking that and raising it to the next level that I think is where we are and where the conversation needs to happen now, which is that sustainable excellence in your market isn't good enough anymore when we have a planet that needs to be healed when we have cross societal issues that have to be tended to and when we know that a solely economic view is has failed us in doing that in radical ways and so that's why we are so glad to be in conversation with you and to have you raising that is the questions to the next level which is right where they need to be what what i oh and then Oti has questions what i need to reflect back i mean first of all I learned that sisterhood, I love the sisterhood anyhow, but I learned it's character friendship in your case. So we have a better name for character friendship now, <laughs> a more female name, sorry, Otti. <laughs> and of course, I also like the holding environment. And I just wanted to quickly um, shot in because you're sitting in California, Monica, Paul Adler at present has turned very strongly to the question how a good society would have to look like. So, I mean, there are really also a number of US scholars who I find have ventured a little bit out of organization studies, but really contribute to that topic. I'm starting to, to understand my role on this kind of, what is the opposite of a panel? It's kind of, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the token kind of uh, male. I'm starting to see. No, I'm just kidding. But I have to say, I mean, I was very impressed, and I have to, I have to say, um, Jane, you have been the first person who we asked for an interview who has immediately said, "Can I bring a friend?" And I think that in itself speaks volume of the way that you're going about your work, and I, I find that very, very um, impressive. Um, whereas on this last point that Antonin is making with Poleta. I think that one thing that we have considered, Monica, is that almost we have to become political. Where, of course, the question of how we can become political, if we look at our current politicians, is a, um, is a, is a very hard one to answer, so to speak. But we will come to that, I'm sure, in a second. But I, I think rather than asking further questions, I'm, I have a feeling we will get to all those nuances throughout the discussion. So what I will do I will just bring up for one second again our inquiry slide for everybody to orient themselves so that you can see where we will go. So we will start our conversation with the question of what is good and in the context of positive organizational scholarship we want to disentangle um, a little bit the vocabulary as well as the um, let's say the the axiology so that the value system that sits behind um this notion of pos because i think everybody has already gotten an impression that there might be something a little bit um value laden if not autobiographic in in the way that the um movement so to speak the the theory is shaping up so we want to investigate into that a little bit then we will go into good organizations and here again i think both jane and monica have a lot of very interesting um, um mechanisms i think you call them jane that can help us to understand what good, i.e. positive organizations look like and how we can potentially understand them and maybe build them. And finally, we will go to the notion of how can we become good in regards to leadership and um, academia? How can we all contribute in bringing these good organizations and maybe good members of those organizations to life? And I think, again, Monica's question is very pertinent. How can that become part of an even greater transformation of society at large? So 
lots of questions. And as I said in the introduction, you've given us lots to read. And we have um, um, really, I guess, uh, a lot of things that we want to ask you. So, Antoinette, well, actually, I will start it, Antoinette, and then I know you have lots of deep dives. So, can I ask a simple question to both of you? Positive organizational scholarship. In a few sentences, what is it? Where does it come from? Why is it important? Maybe we use that to ground the discussion. I'm chuckling at your simple question, Ati, because Dane and I have been engaged in a weekly dialogue this semester about that question, which we feel actually really incapable of answering and we think that the, the we can articulate for you and will some central grounding assumptions that we think are important but i don't think it's a simple answer to what we mean by that field or what what it has grown into over the time since it was founded so jane do you want to start and we yeah. go back yeah, I'll start just with, the, for me, the most uh, generative, but might be the most obscure phrase that for me summarizes. For me, positive organizational scholarship is about the quest and the study to understand um, what cultivates life in and of organizations. Then that begs the question, what does it mean to talk about life? Um, and I think that and, and that's a big question. So I could say, as when I do, do when I teach, um, it's about um, thinking about how to design, how to conceptualize, understand, and design organizations in ways that cultivate um, physiological, psychological, and social well-being. That might be another way, uh, another way to talk about it, where organizations are having a net positive effect on a net by positive, I mean beneficial, moving in a forward, life-giving direction from wherever they start um, in terms of, um, again, these, these three dimensions of, you know, individual um, team or collective and, and societal or community well-being. Um, it is a complex question. Um, I, I feel like po the word positive gets people really stuck um, because it implies um, something about the negative or the absence of the negative. And I think we have always incorporated, I mean, anything that's life-giving implicitly always has the positive and the negative as part of the, pro the process or the, the entity. Um, it's just that we have understudied the beneficial impacts of higher levels of um, what we might call positivity, positive meaning, positive emotion, positive connections. We have underspecified, seen them as sort of nice to haves as opposed to being absolutely essential to processes that um, promote and sustain growth in life. Uh, and so POS is meant to be sort of a corrective to that. I have to say one more thing, and, let, and then I'll let Monica go, is, is um, I came to this perspective um, because I was desperate and, and, and so 
discouraged about my field of organization studies, that I felt like it was not able to answer the questions about what promoted life in organizations at, at, a basic, at a basic level. We were doing lots of problem solving, and, and, um, but there was not a consideration of the full humanity, fully embodied humanity inside organizations as something to be seriously considered. Um, and I felt like there was a lot more about organizational death and organizational decline and processes that were basic, basically messing up individual, you know, decision makers and other processes. And we didn't really understand the conditions that were actually making processes more life-giving. So I don't know if I've obscured uh, the questions by those kinds of answers, but that's, that's, that would be some of what I would talk about. So Monica, why don't you take it from there? I would build on what Jane said by giving you three buckets that um, for people listening to this dialogue might help them build a mental model um, of this complex thing that we can't get our arms around. The first is that it was founded and remains, and I think needs to be more so even intentionally multidisciplinary. Um, that was a strength of the University of Michigan. Um, it has been a characteristic of embracing multidisciplinary work in a profound way there, especially at the time of the founding of the center. Um, there were lots of people from schools all over the university at the table having the conversation. The second bucket that I think is a really important one for understanding how to make sense of this is that it's been deliberately and again um, more always needing to be more so embracing of the um, macro level large scale and system dynamics as well as trying to understand um, what we might think of as micro or um, Im embedded psychological dynamics and to build a view of how they relate to one another. So it hinges, as Jane said, on life-givingness, but also a set of assumptions around the fact that collective forms are organic and alive, um, not mechanistic or dead. So it's a, that's a set of assumptions that we could build from when we talk about life-givingness. It's not a simple set, um, but it's important. And the third thing that Jane also mentioned, but I'll pull out, is that um, the field has embraced the importance of process focus and dynamism, so that animating dynamisms is a part of what we might mean or how we might go about researching life-givingness. Can, can I add... Oh, Jane, go on. No, I was just going to add one more thing about why now that's so important, as I think that there's... a. Uh, within it, it partly has to do with when this was founded or at least it was sort of born. It, it was imprinted at a time literally around 9 11, mm -hmm. where that was sort of the, the um, vessel in which these, these dialogues were happening. And it imprinted the, the, I, the questions, I think, with a focus on how do you unlock human resourcefulness for life in service of life without adding money and without adding material resources. Mm -hmm. So 
so it was a quest to understand, as Monica suggests, the dynamics and processes that were very much in the space between people as having as being keystones to understanding these life-giving processes. And I think that's even more true today and why so many students who are broadly interested in sustainability are drawn to POS because there's this value about not, not only not doing harm, but not using precious limited resources, but tapping into the, in some sense, more unlimited resources that abide in or reside in individual individuals, but also in individual and co collectives of human beings. This is, I think we can spend a week talking about this. And of course you wouldn't have the time or the, the patience to do that with us, but I, I have a number of thoughts on this section and I know Antoinette has a whole bunch as well. I, one mental mark I want to make because it, it resonates this small steps in your book on positive leadership, you say, you were compelled by the big vision and the small steps. So small little steps can actually turn, because like Mary Poppins, you can turn the work into magic if you do it correctly. But I wonder, and I, let's park it for the transformation se section, if there's not an incrementalism that will get you to a potential hitting the wall, if there are such conditions that are structural outside the firm that will stop you from moving ahead. So, I, But that one I want to park. But the second one I need to ask, because Antoinette and I have been spending our time with um, philosophers in, over the last six months, which was a very interesting learning journey uh, in, in all regards, especially the vocabulary. But one thing that has, it has impressed upon us is that science can never answer questions of the meaning of life and the value of life. And I was having, when I was reading, especially your first essays, the impression that you were hubristically running behind an answer with scientific, scientific methodology. So a post-positivism, um, let's torture nature long enough and then kind of life will, 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 will confess, where actually science cannot give you an answer as to what the meaning of life is. And in that regard, I found it striking that philosophers are missing in most of the references in this whole literature on POS. Are you not trying to answer a question of life giving what life is for using the wrong or a partial lens where you're going to psychological physiological social emotional um kind of interpretations where the only one that can help you is a normative one what the good life is for why we as humans are are here or am i misinterpreting maybe maybe just one uh, little Adding to that, um, because um, you said you're multidisciplinary, then of course it would be exciting to have some, I don't know, a virtue ethicist in residence or something like that. So I'm just kind of wondering, um, because the other side is also not very good in stepping over to the descriptive science, as they call Bad it. Bad in stepping yeah. over. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish my husband were here. This is his constant beat with the what drives him crazy about POS because he's much more of a philosopher. <laughs> but I, I think about it in a very pragmatic way as being multilingual. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I mean, that might be, again, a cop-out answer, but I think of ourselves embedded in a 
quote unquote scientific community and needing legitimacy there and training, especially PhD students to have the language and the tools and all that kind of stuff of, of that at the same time that, you know, you're reading about and trying to engage more philosophical normative questions, especially living in a business school right now where there's just a lot of deep inquiry about this. Um, and I don't know, the, the pragmatic way and the way, you know, when I close the door behind, behind me um, and sit with doctoral students, it, it mo most of who have been women, actually, you know, sort of saying it's, it's you know, part of being a, a, a feminist, for example, is being able to speak with multi-languages, you know, and, and, and being aware of multiple paradigms, that that's part of what to, to survive and thrive, part of what you have to do. And I guess, I, so that's my very pragmatic, maybe cop-out answer, that I want it to be both. Can um, I add something? Yeah, of course. Um, I I love the question you asked, Alcy. I'm so glad you started there because um, I think yes to the pragmatics, Jane, but also I think there's a, a light that we could turn on around the way the field of positive organizational scholarship has gotten labeled and the way that it has grown that is probably you know the light is not on it's 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 not necessarily visible but i remember being one of those doctoral students and sitting at the table while um senior scholars in a variety of fields were having an argument about whether the name should be positive organizational scholarship mm -hmm. center or positive organizational science center and they landed quite deliberately on not naming it the positive or science organizational science center and there were um there were people grounded in philosophy in the in the dialogue right? um and there are virtue ethicists who attend the conferences and there is a growing critique of our own practice and ourselves that we want to embrace because I think it's a sign of development that we can ask this question. Whereas 20 years ago, when we were coming around the table, there, we, there, there wasn't even um, a there there to point to to critique. Um, in terms of the business and organizational sciences. And Jane and I went looking for literature to cite in the first paper we were writing about compassion and work, that we couldn't find anything in organizational studies to cite. So we did, you know, we did go to philosophy and we did go to other disciplines that have studied this. Um, but the fact that there's something to critique and that you're naming the critique and bringing the questions forward, I think is such an exciting sign of growth and it's imperative. And I just need to add um, what you brought already a long time ago to the business schools, but I think this is just starting to get ground now, is to get rid to a certain degree of the fact value dichotomy, because of course you always 
were clearly and unashamedly value-driven. I mean, that's at least in the manifesto of the organization, positive organizational scholarship, you can read that. So, I mean, in that sense, <laughs> I find that great. And also that you're um, open to this further qualification. Um, I was kind of thinking we could to go uh, from here to, towards two directions. We could either drill down further, but I think you gave us a very good answer. Um, or uh, I would like to look at two boundary conditions. And the first boundary condition is indeed, I think we touched already on that. Um, if we look, you say macro, but macro still means, of course, organizations or between organizations, then um, of course we could hit a limit. And I think we are hitting a limit now um, with organizations trying to be high road or good organizations. And that has something to do, of course, also with the good society. So um, in your mission, there was also the, it was said, you're dedicated to build a better world. And for me, that means also that we have to think about the society. So are there any ideas and um, also further work to say, what would be the um, ideal society for our organizations to flourish? This one I feel less equipped to answer, to be honest. I mean, I, I think it's such a worthy question. It's one that, as, as we've said, like just in the heat and the pressure and the despair of the last two years, um, there's a lot more conversation about this, mm -hmm. I feel, necessary, really important, but I don't. I know for me, it takes a really long time to settle something where I feel like I can say it out loud. Um, I just know I'm dissatisfied with the simple answers and I'm dissatisfied with, I mean, I think, you know, we can critique capitalism and larger structures that are holding into place the, the um, ecosystem of organizations. Uh, business organizations and others. I don't, I, so again, I would say life on the planet, you know, is the, is the sustaining of life on the planet would be a, what a good society, a marker of a good society would be about sustaining. Um, I think sustaining, not even enriching uh, life on the planet, but what it is that needs prioritization to do that, I don't feel like I have a good answer. I just have a lot of questions. I think the prioritizations of human life makes me is really problematic, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. But what is the alternative? You know, and um, I don't know. I don't maybe Monica has a more educated way to respond to this. Um, I, I just, you know, I, I I really find myself getting sick actually in response to the simple answers and the way that we're even engaging these questions in, in discourse, you know, with blog, well, blogs are better than, I mean, journal article, you know, I look at the mediums through which these conversations or dialogues are happening. And I, this is why I think this, what you're doing is so important. I think dialogical spaces are so important. I think so much of what is written and how it's distributed 
I'm not sure it's, it's educating us at a fast enough rate about what a good society means and what it would require of us as individuals, but also as institutions. So I just have a lot of unsettledness and, um, and uh, unhappiness about my own ability to address this question. I don't know, Monica, what would you say? Well, I would, a couple of things. First, I think Antoinette and Auntie could answer this question better than we can. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, that we, you should be educating us, really, not the other way around. Um, because I feel very conscious these days, more than ever before, about how my personhood and my the trajectory of ideas that I even know how to think or questions I know how to ask are so grounded in cultural logics and intellectual institutions that shape um, what we can think about. And um, American universities, especially American business schools, are not the kinds of institutions that have been shaping us to ask these questions or know how to have the tools to answer them. Um, so I feel very humble about that and very glad to try to reach to an international community that is asking the questions differently than um, than the way they're often being discussed here in my backyard. Um, the second thing is that I've been trying to address this in action through throwing my weight behind creating different kinds of gatherings that have the possibility to open me and others up to the questions in a different way. And an example, that sounds abstract, but an example might be that at the end of last year, I worked with the University of Michigan and Stanford and the University of Edinburgh and other people all around the globe to create a, an event in conjunction with the UN climate change talks happening in Glasgow, the COP26 talks, um, called Realizing a Compassionate Planet. And we tried to bring dialogue around compassion research and the limitations that come with researching compassion um, into the space of change making, policy making, and, uh, you know, global stage setting in relation to what's going on with our planet. And we tried to bring art and music and scientists and change makers and public intellectuals and celebrities and dignitaries, right, and, like to have their presence all commingling to try to open the question much bigger. And that's, I feel like, the best I can do right now. Mm -hmm. And I want to build a little bit on Antoinette's point here. I think dialogue is absolutely necessary. And here again, the facilitation. I think, Jane, you, you talked about process. So even the dialogic process, how can we make sure there's constructive conflict, so to speak? So how do we, how do we ensure actors, like you describe it, Monica, across different constituencies can talk to each other in a Habermasian sense, in a dialogic ethic kind of generation sense, so to speak. But the second aspect here, again, to your point on business schools, and Jane, an old article where you compared um, MBA students and law students in their kind of ethical qualities, right? The vocabulary very often is missing. People don't even know how to discern 
different theories of ethics, so to speak, right? If you don't know that utilitarianism, kind of deontology and virtue ethics, or, or you talked about feminism, so put Carol Gilligan in the middle and care ethics, if you don't even have the vocabulary to understand how they work and what the differences are, very often such a dialogue is not conducive to actually a meaningful outcome. So I think we need to invest in, in, the, in the infrastructure for dialogue, but also probably in the vocabulary and almost in the sense of a community of practice, we need to shape kind of a global practice of people co-working to bring this future vision to life. But I wanted to bring, so what I'm hearing is, so our question was what is good or what is positive? And what stands out for me is life bringing. So there's a life giving. So there's something about almost a natural theory of, of goodness, which is kind of what makes the flower of the human blossom um, I wanted to try to just for the listeners, maybe if we could, um, I don't know if, if, if we can do it very quickly, um, but, but then I'm learning my lesson, maybe that is not possible. Could we just discern a few of the words that people have heard in the context of positive organizational scholarship? And maybe the, the nuances or differences or if they're all the same. And I, I throw five in the mix. So I don't know if, if that is possible to quickly just um, delimit, delimit, so to speak, those terms. Positive deviance, flourishing, thriving, fulfillment or well-being, self-actualization. So positive deviance, flourishing versus thriving versus fulfillment versus self-actualization. Are they all the same? Are they all, or all kind of synonymous for life-giving? Or would you say there are some differences that are relevant for the, the discourse. <laughs> this is happening in the context of our center trying to contemplate changing its name. So it's very much in a, um, you know, from a practical way, um, very relevant. So I'll just say for the one that's for me closest to, um, to life-giving is, is flourishing. But flourishing is a very difficult concept to communicate with. I mean, just you just watch people's eyes glaze over. Flourishing the way, you know, from, a, again, a practical point of view, Barb Fredrickson, I think, is the person that talks about it as it's an optimal state of functioning. Well, fun, what is functioning? Functioning is sort of, again, on a trajectory of greater, for me, physiological, psychological, and social uh, well-being or health. Um, and it's not, it's, it really is considering, or, and you could also add as part of social, you could talk about community health, positive deviance. is just pointing. I mean, I hear that in the, in the kind of the conversations about POS is oftentimes used as a pointer to, um, again, it, in comparisons between, again, individuals or groups, or whole organizations, it's pointing to um, those that are conditions or states of these entities as above the norm. And it's, you know, it's oftentimes used as part of the conversation to say, the way our brains and our bodies work, we focus on negative deviance because our survival from an evolutionary point of view um, focuses on it. as well. Sociology is sort of built on um, a, a fascination and a focus on negative deviance. So, it's, so positive deviance is, is usually, I think, used as a pointer to, 
to as a contrast to what has consumed a lot of the attention um, of both our brains, but also of certain um, academic fields. Um, thriving is the term that to, is often used synonymously with flourishing. Um, I know there are certain researchers. I was one of them, but Gretchen Spreitzer is a is one, and Chris Porath who have made very specific, it's a certain manifestation of flourishing, which is when um, there is a heightened sense of energy and a heightened sense of learning. Um, however, practitioners often use the word thriving to just talk about well-being. So I think well-being and thriving are, are off, flourishing, well-being and thriving are, are often talking about pretty much the same thing. Um, fulfillment and self-actualization, I mean, those are not terms that I maybe have written about, but I don't use as often because they're, they're tagged with a particular point of view, where Maslow's, I mean, that self-actualization is very much um, focused on, on Maslow's view of um, human flourishing. And so it's, for me, it was just a little bit too constraining, although, again, I know there are certain researchers who are, who are trying to expand that. So I don't know if that clarified anything, but those are some of the things that to me distinguishes some of those terms. Um, but I love the idea of flourishing. And I we often use um, the metaphor of gardens. So when you mentioned blooming, it was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because um, people can often see and relate to um, the blooming and the flourishing of plants, <laughs> which is easier to almost visually see than it is the flourishing of, of human beings. Um, and so, and then the beauty of a garden metaphor to, to sort of talk about this stuff is that it also gets you thinking about where is the flower located and what is the quality of the soil or the environment in which that flower or, or, um, you know, that, yeah, flower or bush or whatever other plant you're talking about, what, what is the conditions or the ecosystem of which it is a part that's contributing to its full blossoming where it's flourishing? I think, I mean, it's, Monica, do you want to add to the definitions? Well, let me just add a, two ideas. One, that these terms could also be traced back in a kind of intellectual genealogy to roots in different areas of the social sciences or the life sciences. And so that's a useful way to um, intellectually distinguish among them. And the fact that they're all commingling is a part of, I think, pointing to the multidisciplinary contributions that people are making. The second idea that I would offer that across all the words is that goes back to your first question, Opti, right? Are you asking us this as scientists <laughs> who want to um, put rigid definitions around these terms so that we can use them in quite precise ways and map them onto measures that we know may be limited, but they're part of the craft of our field? Or are you asking 
about them as what work the words do in the world and um, the, from the connotative meaning that they offer to us that we can use um, in whatever way we're going to use the idea. And from that perspective, we need to remember that mystery and openness are qualities of words that scientists don't value very much but that connotatively and philosophically are important. And that the metaphorical connotations of a word like flourishing um, have a value to us in certain kinds of ways that might be diminished in um, other parts of the social sciences. I think by the same token, and sorry, Antoinette, we, we didn't want to go into the definitions for long, but I think, Monica, the other, I was discussing the gardening and the gardener metaphor with someone. And what came up in our conversation was, it resonates with which what is called a pastoral. A pastoral as in romanticism, which is an idealized painting or an idealized literature resonating to nature, where people are overemphasizing the closest to nature. And very often it, uh, it signifies a yearning to a, a, a lost childhood and a desire for spiritual redemption, because in the symbolism of the garden, it resonates with the Garden of Eden. So it was very interesting, if you go towards the metaphors, very often there's an unexamined, Jung would call it collective unconscious, or archetypal stories that we don't understand, but the attraction sometimes to these is very deep. And before you know it, Romanticism, as we know, was an overemphasis of not only in nature, but also the heroic image of man. And you get to an individualism that might be implied by the gardening metaphor, which nobody is examining. So I think, as you say, so the literal, the, the literal valence of some of these metaphors, we have to be very careful with. And, and if always ask what energy is drawing us towards them and why. But I find that is a, a fascinating statement. Can I make two remarks? And um, the second one will be a question. So as a scientist, <laughs> I find it interesting um, that in flourishing, you have the social aspect, which I don't see as strongly in thriving. So maybe that's something we can take apart later. Um, and it kind of then doesn't surprise me that Jane first started with flourishing, if I'm not completely wrong here. But I think that's an important one to tease out later, because this is, again, the, the opposite then of just individualism. You would have much more the relational component in it. We are not clear or not on the same page here whether I'm right in my interpretation, but we'll find that out. I thought I found that out when I looked at the scales. The second thing now, if we, if we talk about connotations and metaphors, um, maybe that's a bit of a hard link, but I kind of hear it still here. Um, Otte has a favorite quote of, uh, of Schumacher, who used to say, our modern experiment to live without religion has failed. And um, what I do read very often, and that also, of course, it comes across in our language, is that we need faith and hope um, still, even in a secular world. And I even found it in, in one of the studies, I think in Monica's studies of courageous, um, courageous collective action. So I was wondering, what is the place for faith or spirituality or hope in positive organizations? And do we need it? Or could we do without? 
<laughs> everybody. Um, so again, uh, this is more of a personal statement, but of all the years of, you know, being at gatherings where POS scholars come together, you know, whether it's in, um, at specific conferences or at the Academy of Management, or whatever, there is an implicit shared understanding that this is pointing to something that is spiritual at some level and that it's it's almost intentionally not named because it's could be so potentially divisive mm -hmm. and again in the world that i've been operating in which is you know we're not just at an american business school we are at our one university which in the united states means like recent there's you know there's a whole story about what is legitimate and i have so I would say there is a very strong unarticulated spiritual piece that is a lot about faith that is, is um, supporting the, endura the durability of this approach. Um, again, whether it has, it can last because it's not named, being unnamed, I'm not sure. Um, again, this is what I think that some, just, just, just thinking about the people who were involved in, really, you know, for like five to 10 years, um, I feel like my whole identity was about just trying to, I was one of the midwives trying to keep this perspective alive in organization studies because I had personally, myself, but also witnessed that it was part of what was keeping people in the field. Uh, especially if you go to conferences the uh, that are POS, the percentage of women is so much higher than in my field normally. Um, what is that? I don't totally know, but I think there is this um, unarticulated spiritual piece that's sort of undergirding it. But the people that were involved in the founding at the center, we had very different faith traditions. Uh, and, um, and so it was almost per purposefully closeted as a part as to, you know in order to keep the momentum going um but i know from what students write about in their papers and stuff that that is part of the resonance of these ideas so <laughs> it's also part of the uh deep critique of almost anything we try to publish in this field so reviewers are constantly um asking this question of the work and um i think it's a really important question to talk about although i don't know um i mean i guess when jane says that there's something spiritual that's closeted i guess maybe we might include in the spiritual some kind of humanism right and are you all like reaching for leaders for humanity are sort of reaching for that thing too so we're all reaching toward that in whatever that is. Um, I guess I think that we need in, in the way you render what your project is doing, Antoinette, and the suffering machine, right? We, like, we need the despair that comes along with looking at the way we have created a world mm -hmm. in which even the most privileged of us 
work inside suffering machines that drain us of the thought that there could be a better world. And um, even the most privileged of us have a hard time holding on sometimes to the fact that humanity could be better than this. Mm. Um, and so we need the suffering and the despair. And if we only have the suffering and the despair, it will sink us, right? And, you know, I have had times in my career and my life where it sinks me. So that's why we need the hope yeah. and the faith that our, whatever it is, that, that's the bigger thing that we're reaching toward that we can critique or try to name or try to make visible and invisible as it suits us. Right? But just at the, at the level of um, being a human being right, in this um, suffering machine. <laughs> um, that that's why I think I guess I'm doing the pragmatics this time pragmatically right, we need it Monica that is why I distributed your article today to our to our guys in Knights of Change um, your article on courageous um, collective action because it exactly had this in there and I felt in this times something like that is just perfect for people to hold on to, just to yes. also say that. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the, the challenge, I, I reckon, Schumacher, I mean, he wasn't really thinking about religion as religion when he said our post-enlightened experiment has failed. It was religion and the, and the qualification of a, a supernatural lawgiver who would provide common ground to... Um, yield optimum social choice. And this is the reference to Ken Eros and my, my favorite, because we haven't cracked it, impossibility theorem. If we have a society where everybody is focused on individual freedom and we don't have a common ground to stand on in some moral sense, we actually cannot find agreement because there is no such thing that we can teleologically use to say, this is the qualifier to discern good and bad choices at a societal level. And I think here that the problem I see with, um, I mean, McIntyre would call it relativism. I guess you could say if you are more from an Eastern spirituality perspective, you, you, you look at um, something like ecological harmony, which is very often intrinsic in some of these monist, kind of monistic traditions. That might not yield a common ground for action because it almost prescribes detachment or inaction as action as their philosophy. And that, I feel, is, is something that we need to discuss further. What is the common ground? How can we build collective action, right, beyond a resurgent maybe of a contagious sentiment, given a specific uh, contingent threat? But I guess let's move maybe to the second section, because this was already super, super interesting. I think I take away life-giving, as Antoinette said, if you have to use one word, it's flourishing, clearly, and um, pragmatism, I also take away, and I think Ed Freeman, who we interviewed recently, would be very proud of that. Um, good organizations. Now, you have written so much that we have tried to scaffold this next section a little bit, and we were orienting ourselves at that beautiful article that you once wrote about kind of breathing new life into organizational science 
um, which has come up a few times. I wonder why. But you said in that article that the the way you have decided to go about your research was one to look for signs of life. Secondly, you were then trying trying to interpret those signs of life as to what the underlying um, contextual conditions or mechanisms were that would create life. And I would suggest this as a as a mechanism to go through this section. So the the first thing maybe we talk about what are the signs of living good positive organizations how we dis how how can we spot and discern them and then secondly what are the mechanisms that are at play and in that part i would suggest if if you if you allow us to dissect the mechanisms that you have written about in 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 a um in a bit of a partitioning firstly individuals and agency what is the role of the individual in terms of individual thriving job crafting agentic behaviors emotions and energy so what happens at the individual level secondly the social level and you've you've written about social architecture high quality connections reciprocity psychological safety uh, social capital virtues and especially courage and compassion so maybe we take those in the second part and then finally um the organization. So what is the organizational design? You talked about social structural and structural enablers, positive organizing, um, organizational identification and organizational virtuousness, and then collective action and nonlinear dynamics. So a lot in this space. But if we could do maybe individual, then the social context, and then the organizational in, uh, kind of, um, um, Antoinette, help me institutional kind of aspects of it I'm, I'm very sorry but you have written too much taxonomy changes over time so we've tried to cluster it but I, I therefore would would probably um kick us off with the simple question what are the signs of positive living alive organizations how do we spot them or how could we even measure aliveness Um, I mean, there are very indirect measures. I mean, so there are indicate at the organizational level, there's indicators, I think, and there's also contributors. So, you know, a very pragmatic question that Monica and I deal with with students is they're trying to find a place to work and they want to know from the outside, what do I look for? as signs of life, you know, inside an organization. And, you know, we usually say, um, you know, you, you, if you had a Canberra, widen the aperture and look at a lot of different things. You know, very pragmatic things would be just how, um, how alive various people are. And, you, you know, the thing is you, you feel it when you go into an organization, you are even on a, Zoom call, you know, with a group of people that have been working for a while together, you can almost sense the vitality or the energy in that group. You could measure it. I mean, people have measured it too, but um, I think, you know, apparent vitality, um, as imperfect as, a you know, an indicator that is, um, you often, we often say to students, um, you know, look at what you see when you walk into a place, you know, is it like when you were a kid 
when he went into the really great classrooms as a, you know, it, like literally the classroom looks really alive. There's color, there's expressions of creativity. There's, you know, it's, it's not the sort of the typical, what we might call typical professional setting. So there's visual symbolization of life that uh, often is again, detectable through, um, through sight and being able to see um, I mean, again, as just an aside, in teaching this term, we had a lot of outside speakers come in and show their slides. And you could almost, without them saying anything, by looking at, um, at, the, at the spaces that people were congregating in, um, not the Google, you know, you've got all the toys around you kind of things, but other kinds of indicators of of life. I mean, there's the typical things like turnover rates, you know, are people saying things, you know, what, what, um, what are other indicators of, you know, human engagement in what they're doing? How do they talk about their work? I mean, those are all like little proxies um, that are indicators of life that are really different than than um, you know what a student would typically pay attention to in, in discerning whether or not it's an organization that they want to work in, and I, when I talk up to them about that, it really is about um, you know where what kind of place do you want to spend time in that literally is going to affect not, not just how sick or how healthy you might be, but basically how long you will live. So. It, you have to pay serious attention to those indicators of life. So, Monica, what would you say about, I mean, I have a whole list of, you know, not any one of them is an indicator, but if you look at the, the full spectrum of different um, clues that, in fact, it is a, a vital place, um, they, they often, you know, speak uh, together. I mean, you can see it. I would add things, I think you touched on these, Jane, a little, but things like uh, playfulness, laughter, um, metaphors, word choices, also mutuality and relational quality. But I do think there's a way that I've thought about um, the wordless um, or more difficult to capture kind of intuitive sensing or um, gut feel right? that, that, that uh, there's a way in which if we theorize that we are actually registers of a, um, <clears throat> a collective that has its own vital form, that um, we, what, how it's registering in us, we are an indicator <laughs> um, of the, the vitality of the collective form as well. Well, that would also mean, uh, just a quick remark to what you're saying, that we need to learn to appreciate again, we need to learn to listen again, we need to maybe raise more ethnologists than business students kind of almost. Um, so, um, and if companies want to find out whether they are, um, whether they have these living signs and they can't see it themselves, then we would also maybe more send somebody who is kind of teaching them um, interpretative and qualitative research. Is yes. that what I'm, 
Okay. Um, yes. And we do that. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what we, I mean, Monica teaches this um, action learning course around flourishing in which students go and embed themselves in places and pay attention to those kinds of clues and cues. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, again, I, I think part of my experience of this is I've always had a dual appointment in psychology in the business school. And I literally, you know, I'm the same person. I walk into one building, I feel completely different than in the, than in the other building. And, you know, learning to trust my, my senses, my sensual experience of it has been um, really important because, again, the, the received wisdom about what you should pay attention in, play, in terms of play, finding a good place to work and what kinds of people you should ask and what kinds of conversations would tell you, um, they're really different. Um, and I also want to add, because I, I made the different, I try to make the distinction between sort of indicators of vitality and contributors to vitality. And, you know, as we, when we talk about social architecture, organizational routines can be really diagnostic about what an organization is about, because it's, it's institutionalized habits, that the organization building into you have to participate in. And one of the most important is onboarding. You know, so again, saying to students about paying attention from onboarding and selection. So those are first moments matter. So th those in sorts of in terms of being um, good possible indicators of what kind of place this is. And, you know, is it a dead routine or is it a live routine? What is your experience going in, you know, going through the selection process and the onboarding process? Are you treated, you know, with dignity as per a person who is uh, worthwhile right from the moment they start interacting with you? Um, that's a pretty good proxy for what it's going to ha happen once you get into the bowels of the organization. So I think there's a lot of things pragmatically that people can pay attention to that are really different than the, um, you know, what career services are often teaching students in business schools to pay attention to. Interesting. I think I'm making a note, Antoinette, um, for the leadership section, because I think, again, Monica, as you described it, the ability to sense the place, so to speak. And then in, 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 in coaching and in, in psychodynamics, we, call, we, we talk about transference and counter-transference. Right? So the, the resonance of the systemic energy and systemic emotions. I think that, again, is something that people do not often learn or spend a lot of time on. And then secondly, and Antoinette was mentioned that in another session we had on emotional literacy, even to be able to translate those sentiments in a way that captures the nuances. And then the cognitive aspect, what's the hermeneutics? What's the interpretation? Is that good or bad, depending on the conditioning that people might have had? So they might say a playfulness that you described, they might interpret, interpret that as waste of time, inefficient. It's, it's a bad environment because that's the conditioning that they have had. So again, I think what you pointed to, the liminal conversations, ability to hold different paradigms and interpret the world from different angles is probably a skill that in the leadership section becomes relevant, but very good. So I think we have a sense of how to qualify a, a positive organization. Antoinette, do you want to go to the, to the, um, to the agency part? Yeah, although um, I'm still a little bit curious how you have developed the question section. So we were very uh, last minute because we were like, <laughs> we were reading still the whole day. 
um, so maybe you make the start with the individuals and then I know what, how you want to link these different concepts together because I'm really not so sure. We'll try. And I think this is, again, agile. If we fail, we're going to adapt. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to say that was on purpose because we have pragmatists. No, and so I think the, the first aspect, um, Jane, I think especially in your writings that I was intrigued by is this notion of the, the role of the individual in creating a positive place. Um, you are, I think, one of the very few people who speaks about construction of identity, work identity, and you're what I found very interesting because we come from a kind of Keegan, Piaget, Erickson, Kohlberg, so developmental psychology, you come at it from a much more interpretive narrative perspective, which I found very interesting. So what is it about the growing at work that relates to self-construction? How is job crafting helping with that? And what does it mean for agency that people have in making the organization they're in beautiful? Yeah, so just let me put it in context. Since the beginning, when I was a strategy researcher, and even before, um, I've been very influenced by um, social constructionists in the Chicago school, uh, symbolic interactionism, all that kind of thing. So always interest, and it came from, I just have to, I will get there, but I just have to put it in context. It came from my experience before I went to graduate school of being a researcher, and I was studying the adoption of um, new technology in the footwear industry, okay? And I would go into these plants in the state of Maine, and they would have the same machine, the automatic bottom rubber, the rub the bottom of your shoes so that I know, the, so the so the heels would attach, and they would see the machine so differently. I mean, the machine in one in one plant it would be seen as this opportunity, you know, it had all infinite possibilities, da 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 da, and in another place they would see it as this existential threat to the whole way their whole way of. Uh, seeing shoes. So right from I began like 50 years ago, it's hard to believe, but yeah, when I was in college, um, I've always been fascinated and really struck by the difference, you know, how things that look very objectively similar can be interpreted really differently. Um, and it had all kinds of downstream impacts. So my interest in um, and how the self, how who we are and who we imagine ourselves to be currently, how, actually how we see our past, how we see ourselves currently, and how we define ourselves in the future are very much affected by the context in which we sit. And, um, and again, I feel like um, this, this, this was actually a, a core idea that influenced um, how I married strategy going back to the original and strategy and micro individual behavior. And it came from a study of, um, of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. That's a big Port Authority um, and their struggle with homelessness in their big facilities. Like they own the world trade center, big airports, that kind of thing. And it didn't matter if, and they got, they got, creamed in the press because they were seen as throwing homeless people out of their beautiful buildings. And it didn't matter if you were the 
toll booth collector who's collecting tolls or you were the big muckety-muck ahead, the head of the Port Authority, um, who you saw yourself to be as a human being was really affected by not just being a part of the Port Authority, but how the Port Authority was being construed in the press. And again, I saw in that st study that I did with Janet Dukerich so many years ago, again, how mutable our sense of self was and how sensitive it was to changes in these different levels of context, your micro world that you were living in your department or something like that, the, the broader organization and even the reputation of the organization more broadly. So um, in our field, they were only thinking, mostly thinking about um, how organizations influence negative constructions of self, about how we damaged, uh, how organizations damaged people's reputations and who, how they thought about themselves. We never really thought about organizations as vessels of or contributors to self-constructions that actually pr produced a sense of well-being. And that's where Again, when Amy Rosniewski, Glad Bab and I did this study of how hospital cleaners and saw how um, the ways that they enacted their work in their little micro world of like cleaning patients' rooms and whether they saw themselves as healers or as people just, you know, doing the dirty work of cleaning, how that affected their um, sense of well-being, how much they wanted to contribute to the community, how loyal they were to the organization, et cetera. So I'm telling you this story just to tell you there are so many episodes in my research and in my personal life where that led me and the people I was working with to ask, how could we think about um, ways to help people see themselves in, 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 in ways that would actually contribute to their physical and psychological health. And that's really what therapy okay, is I, all I'm about. sorry for, for being interrupted, but I, when I read that, I, I, I had an epiphany almost because I thought what you described in life giving and the flourishing, the, hel what was it, heliopathic kind of yeah. going towards the sun, yeah. towards the light, that is almost intrinsic in this becoming. I'm, I'm having, I'm thriving because I'm feeling I'm going towards the light. And if I don't take this aspect of self in relationship of work, I think I'm missing the whole life-giving quality that I can introduce. So I think your, your notion of correlating the self-development and the self-interpretation of I'm progressing is fundamental to make any sense of, of this notion of a positive organization. Yeah, well, I think the, the sense of myself growing and progressive is only one way in which um, the self-construction contributes to a sense of life-giving. I mean, so Laura Morgan Roberts and Jeff Bednar, and I went through all this, all, that mean a bunch of psychological research and, and we developed what we call the give model. I don't know if you read that, but, we, but basically it was trying to say, what does psychology tell us about the kinds of self-constructions that promote well-being or thriving? And the give model says growing, that's the progress one, that's the G in, give, in giving integrated. There's a whole bunch of researchers that say, if we see ourselves the different facets of ourselves as complementary as opposed to conflicting, that's another way to, um, to endow one's self-construction in a way that actually promotes 
well-being. The V is virtuous self. So the degree to which I endow, you know, impute that I have virtuous, I'm compassionate, I'm courageous. That also, there's research that suggests that's also life-giving. And the E is the over-researched part of what psychology has done, which is the esteemed self. So seeing myself as valued in the eyes of others. And so, yeah, so I get really excited about this. And again, this is not me. This is this amazing set of people I've worked with. Like the, the, the cleaners taught us about job crafting. They were crafting their work. They were using the limited agency that they had in their jobs, partly by how they cognitively thought about who they were, but also how they changed their how they conducted their work so that they were interacting not with the doctors who were dissing them all the time, but were interacting more with the patients who were giving them all kinds of positive feedback. Um, and they, they organized their tasks in ways that, um, again, allowed the job meaning to be higher um, and, again, contributing to life giving. So I just think there's so much we can do um, in the space of self-construction that um, that is actually, you know, um, I mean, Victor, Victor Frankel taught this is so long ago, you know, that that it contributes to, um, you know, um, all kinds of outcomes that are desirable for people. I thought it was fundamental. I really love that bit. And I, I, given that we're all here about high, high quality connections, um, I, I would love to make a connection with Bill Torbert, another person that we've spoken to. My suspicion I think is. Know that, Stephen Bill Torbert. Well, you might, you I might know Bill anyway. So I don't, yeah, I don't know him well. I don't know him well, but I, he's a character. You can. He's a character, and I, I love him because he's victim of his own theories. But I think the <laughs> what you will find the give model. I think you will rediscover it in Bill's action logics, and he would suggest that actually people go through different stages in a staged developmental model where they will go through these different phases. The first will probably be the E, then there was probably different roles, you get into the V, and eventually he would probably suggest the G is what really drives people at the highest level of development. But I guess yet another piece of the puzzle potentially to look at. <laughs> well, when we, can, I, can I just, just say that, yes. so Monica would know this for, again from, so the power of the, I think the power of the GIVE model is that you can, um, invite people to access these different narratives. Um, so you not only have practical implications for how you can think about how organizations can cultivate these narratives, but we all have a lot of these narratives in our heads. It's just different ones are more or less accessible. And so one of the things that Laura and Jeff and I have done is we've created this tool for helping people get access to these stories of themselves in which they're growing, stories in which themselves are stories in which, so that they are literally more accessible to people when they're facing setbacks and those kinds of things. So that's not as much of a developmental model as saying all are equally potent. I don't know how potent they are, yeah, um, but, but that someone is gonna be better off if they have access to more of these different kinds of narratives than fewer kinds of narratives. So I get all excited about this. this is one of the reasons I love working with Monica is just, you know, it's about how do you, okay, you can have these concepts and stuff, you know, way up here, but like, how do you make it, put it boom in people's lives so they can use it today. Yeah. And that's, there's, that's what the center I think has done a brilliant job of 
is facilitating these. Monica's doing a lot of stuff in her company around this stuff. It's it's just has it's so exciting to see the difference it makes. I also believe, but then then uh, Monica, please tell us how you are doing this. Of course, um, but um, listening to this, the one distinction to me is also, also of course that this is more accessible to everybody. Whereas, I, I mean, I'm really, I, I, I love the stage model, but I kind of think, wow, that's a lot of hard work till you are so able to hold all these different action logics in your hand. In that sense, um, probably also fits to what you were saying in the beginning, that you were more interested in this also accessibility to, to everybody in the organization. Yeah, so can I just <laughs> invite this? Well, I just want Monica to tell about the reflected best self because she's really, or that which is another um, intervention around um, j job crafting and and um, self construction. Sorry, are we we're taking this off track. Are we taking this off track? No, no, no. I just want her to have she's because she's just uplifted. Because I think that the first question was how does the self construction work? What is the relevance. I think the second question is, how can people go about doing job crafting? Because I think the way you define it is people actively, proactively shaping their identity at work. So I think, Monica, if you've got any tips for people, I'm sure they would, um, would love that. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about the best self just yet, because I want to stay with this um, get, give model. The best self relates to the give model as well. But I want to stay with that and just maybe try to put it into a different kind of context than a corporate one or a, um, a, a governmental one, which Jane was talking about, a sort of um, that kind of a structure. Um, if, um, if we think about the, the sort of moments that all kinds of organizations offer us around dilemmas of action and inaction, uh, I think these, the way the organization itself and its routines and the, the, um, the way the organization is encouraging us to narrate ourselves in all kinds of ways through relationally, managerially, through trainings, routines, um, cultural symbols, etc., can invite, as Jane said, these different forms of self-narration. So just this week in the United States, we had a court um, reject the case that is this you know, long history of this, but uh, yet again, reject the case where police officers said they shouldn't be culpable for the death of a black person who was killed at the hands of a fellow police officer um, because their job was to follow orders without question. And when I'm working with police agencies and many other people, and I'm not doing that much, I'm helping many other people in the United States doing this work, to sit with police agencies and ask a question like, what is compassion in policing? What would it look like to be a compassionate police officer? 
<clears throat> what is courage in policing? And what does courageous collective action look like in your work? And what would it be like to be a courageous police officer in this case? Right? And it, it invites the people at that moment right, to have a narrative that supports being this kind of an, a, jo a job actor, right? And doing this kind of a role is also tied to being a virtuous person, right? And I can be a compassionate police officer, and that means doing something different right now. I could be a source of courage for my fellow officers, which would mean challenging something that feels not right to me instead of silencing it, right? So there's, I think um, we can think of all kinds of places where these invitations to self-narration make a difference, but I wanted to sort of reach for the virtue ones, right? Since we've had the virtues active in our dialogue today, um, they're the ones that I think, um, at least corporate life, but a lot of organizational logics um, don't address as much, right? They, they sort of leave under the surface in a way or silence and leave implicit. Um, whereas the best self or the esteemed self is one that it's easier to sort of link to theories of productivity or you know, managerial effectiveness. And so it's easier to have conversations about best self at work um, sometimes. <clears throat> that said, uh, Jane and Laura Morgan Roberts and Gretchen Spreitzer and Bob Quinn at the Center for Positive Organizations created a beautiful exercise called the Reflected Best Self Exercise using explicitly a constructivist approach to the self knowing that how I tell the story of who I am has so much to do with how I think other people see me. And um, that exercise invites people to reach out across the domains of their life to others who matter to them and ask them to tell a story of a moment that others witness them at their best. And then um, we've created a a web engine that aggregates these stories in an easier way, but you can do this through email or telephone calls or TikTok videos. Right? Um, but through aggregating views of moments when other people have witnessed us at our best, we have an opportunity to retell ourselves um, who, who we might be at our best and, and also to um, what my students would say, show up differently in the spaces that matter to us. Maybe we can show up with um, a greater confidence in um, things that we valued in ourselves, but we didn't understand that others valued them as well. And so the reflected best self is reinforcing um, a way that I could narrate myself in the communities that matter to me as more efficacious to, or as um, more courageous or as uh, uh, more of a force of change. It's a beautiful exercise. I mean, I also did that with my students and I think it's also the gratitude um, and the warmth you create with the people or 
kind of doing this with you for you is is another wonderful um, part of it and that probably um, would bring me to one question I find or I'm still pondering a little bit about um, moral identity or virtuous identity or best self are of course also created in in the community um, and that might be the high quality connections but probably also resulting out of that a certain social um, architecture. So I was kind of asking myself how from this more individualistic point of view um, do you come to this more co-created aspect? What are the mechanisms which also travel between? Because I try to find out, for instance, how to bridge thriving to high quality connections. And um, th that would be, for instance, something um, I believe you have already in the literature, but I would like to understand it better. Okay, so let me uh, make sure I understand. So, um, so you're so you're you're interested in sort of how how to institutionalize high quality connections that might promote thriving. Oh, I was I was too complicated. I'm just um, in, interested how these are linked. I mean, how do you come from this more individual level narrative to the high quality connections? What are the resources between which kind of um, travel between these two concepts and the social architecture as the even higher concept on a higher level? Um, well, well, I'm sort of stumped in terms of like how, how to, to answer. I think of the high quality connections as kind of a, again, a separate, but a, um, an equally potent way to think about how, you can change your everyday behaviors in ways that um, create capacity and capabilities in yourself and in others. So high quality connections just point to the word connection is really important because at least in English, there's an overuse of the idea of relationship, which implies much more of an enduring um, set of interactions or a set of connections between people and the high quality connection label that Emily Heafy and I started using was meant to say that these moments, these short, even 40 second interactions that you have moments of interaction um, that you have with another person can, again, not just leave both people better off, but can change the capacity, capability, potentiality in the space between you. And so it, I, the, the idea of high quality connections points to a whole reservoir of relational moves that people can make in the way that they interact with each other that again are beneficial for on, on multiple levels beneficial for both individuals beneficial for um for again metaphorically which is the space between two people um and so you know I, like one early attempt that i had made to ask the which um well let me just go back again the interest in high quality cases came a lot from that study of the cleaners um which again showed that these very short-term interactions that patients had with um with the cleaners was fundamentally 
transformational for the cleaners themselves, but also for the patients. So again, I, it's not like I come up with these ideas. I just keep seeing these things in the world. And then it's like, where is that in our field and the way we were studying relationships, you know, in terms of primarily networks um, or relationships between boss and subordinates um, with leader member exchange theory was just ignoring kind of what was happening in the everyday interactions that people were having at work, which what which could be, um, again, be a cultivator of life in the individuals and, and in the whole. And so then as we came to understand the potency of these interactions, which is just really amazing, we started asking the questions, well, for at the at the more macro level, beyond the interactions, like how could you construct contexts in which it's easier and more likely for people to build these life-giving connections? Um, and that's where the social architecture, um, you know, gives us a way. A social architecture just um, focuses on these flexible structures and organizations that are different intervention points, networks, um, roles routines and um, and culture, different intervention points that you could, as an organizational designer, potentially, or a group designer, a team designer, potentially influence, you could influence um, the vitality or life in the system by changing these structures in ways that made it easier for people to build these life-giving connections and to unlock resources in people and in and, and the system itself. Is that, is that the kind of answer you were looking for, Antoinette? Now my question was so bad, you made a much better answer than my question. So. <laughs> I do think there's something that Jane so much takes for granted that she doesn't even maybe, you know, that, that it's just so much of a part of how she approaches anything that she does that we could just name it for her. Um, Antoinette, and I don't know if this is where you're going as well, but um, Jane said that a deep part of her interest in these questions came from the very beginning from the Chicago school and from um, learning about a social constructionist perspective. And that has led her and us in our work as much as we can given the um, places where we sit, right, to challenge the sort of hyper-individualization and the reification of the self and to adopt really this uh, narrative view of identity that's kind of kaleidoscopic and refractory. So the narrative of um, self is always sort of situated in and resonating with kind of multiple social and relational levels at the same time. And so we end up having a much more kind of relational um, uh, ontology of what we mean by a self than, um, than most psychologists do in the, in the positivist approach to psychology. And I think that just comes so naturally, so much woven into the foundation of Jane's thinking that Here, um, it becomes really interesting because like you say i think moving towards a relational ontology which is also intrinsic to virtue ethics so again this notion of virtues it always rings a bell in my in my head and of course kim cameron has written about it but i think there's a lot more to explore in terms of how do we link an individual thriving 
which, as you define, is a combination of energy, emotional energy. It's, a, it's, it's joined up with learning. High-quality connections offer energy, offer learning, but they also open up. And I, I will argue that, to a degree, you need high-quality relationships there. A experimentation with self, which I think in a 40-second interaction with someone is unlikely to happen. But if, if we use a Barbara Fredrickson broaden and build spectrum with the same people over time, I think it allows to experiment with self. And then we have an evolution of self, but by the same token, I think Antoinette wanted to go here. For us, it becomes really interesting to think about the organization as gestalt, right? The organization as identity, as actor, because as you both describe, particularly when it comes to contagion effects, the frame that people interpret the organization qua whole, qua system, so to speak, A, is, is influencing the way they describe their own identities, but B, opens potentiality and affordances in regards to individual and collective behaviors, right? So what's the interaction mechanism between a narrative, well, how do I interpret my life vis-a-vis -vis the organization that I stem from, and what's the build mechanism towards that? And then secondly, kind of a, a behavioral mechanism where, as you said, Monica, if we induce people to bring virtuousness into their own frames, into the organizational frame, we might create a much more positive um, image of the organization that is in people's minds and might translate into behaviors in the way that they live their day-to-day -day jobs. Right? So I think this is what is fascinating us in it, it becomes this spiral, Jane, that you described, right? It's this uh, notion of a, a, it's not only a, it's a sense-making in a, in a constructionism sense. It's a sense-making spiral that is translated into reality through the interactions people are having. And I find this is fascinating. But the question I will, I will add to this, Jane, is so how do we make it happen? And I, I have to ask a question because we're always very bad with time boundaries. And it's three minutes to the hour. <laughs> are we able to go five minutes over or so, or is it a hard stop for both of you? Oh, no, I can keep going, Monica. Can you? Yeah, no, this yeah, is a, sure. such a fantastic Please. conversation. Then, I mean, I'm so glad we can because now it's getting really exciting. So how do we translate well, this into changes in, I think it's, so you call it the social architecture, but also, and Antoinette being one of the top 40 HR voices in Europe, real practices. What do we do with performance management? What do we do? You've talked about selection and recruitment. What do we do with budgeting? What do we do with other practices? Where are the toxic and where are the life-giving practices? What can we do? Oh, my God. <laughs> Jane, should, can we start with, um, maybe start with the assumptions of resourcing theories? Yeah, sort of like in terms of the this is a core theory, theoretical assumption. I don't think we've written about it. Monica's written about it sort of separately, but I have written about it very much as a mechanism. But you want to go ahead, Monica. She does it really well. Well, I think that when we, when we get into the, you know, graduate seminar level questions about how we're going to relate the person and the organization and um, situate them in the world, it, it, um, we should name a set of assumptions that we've been using a lot that I think we find helpful here. And we're drawing on the work of Martha Feldman writing about resourcing and, um, and more broadly uh, the kind of work by Carl Weick about organizing and thinking about um, 
challenging our tendency to reify things into entities and instead to keep the focus on action and sort of creation and recreation through action. So when we try to think about this, we try to think about the, the kinds of activities and activity sets and activity trajectories that um, take these things and put them in motion and keep them in motion and how the motion looks and changes. And so if we can think about doings, right, um, and um, how um, doing, doings and beings go together, and as we think about doings, then we think about um, doing the uh, work of budgeting and infusing the doing with slight differences like um, budgeting through a different set of questions. Right, so we could we can turn a lot of this like theoretical this theoretical um, work that we're doing into um, moments where the doing of things can take different kinds of shapes, mm -hmm. and so that's the body of theory that we have drawn on to try to do the connecting work that I think you're you're asking us about theoretically. I mean, the only problem with Wyke, of course, is the lack of embeddedness to a degree, right? Because there's history, there's an identity that is already there, which is not taken into account if I'm taking this purist perspective on symbolism of the action itself. But I think there's a... Is there not a requirement for wisdom, which brings us back to the moral identity? Because to turn the thinking into being or the doing into being, I need to dwell in the moment and infuse it with that life-giving nature. So I need, I need to have a, a criteria to say, how do I turn this task into something which has a different quality, a different relevance? So is that, again, agents having wisdom to do so? Or can I embed that into practices and create some good practices that people can just use off the shelf? Well, I think that doing tends to, um, the, the doing in the practice, then tends to lead to the moments where the questions can become relevant and the thinking, right? So um, we, I think methodological individualism often pri privileges the mentality and the idea has to lead and then the action follows. And I think in a practice theoretic resourcing point of view, we're trying to look at the action as constitutive and um, that you know, we kind of act our way into thinking something and then we act our way into rethinking it. So I just, um, that's the kind of landscape that I, that I would sit in as we try to talk about how we turn, we don't sort of turn something into practice. Practice is happening and um, th things are being done, right? And then we, we um, as we look at, um, if we are intervening in them, right? As we look at the being done, um, we can use all those indicators of life-givingness that we were talking about and the way we register things to also identify moments of possibility or <clears throat> mom 
spaces for change or the opportunity of shaping the practice in a different way. And um, that's, I think, where, uh, you know, that, that's, not, that's no simple thing to do. Um, and um, wisdom and the need for alternatives becomes really important. No, I think it, it might help to give a specific example here. So I'm thinking about work that, Monica, you've done with hospitals and hospital systems where part of the inquiry is you go in and sort of say, what routine are you currently engaging in that's causing suffering? And so the, the one you tell me about that it really moves me is when you have shift changes. And so they're doing shift changes a particular way that's enacting people in particular roles and with particular meanings and they're feeling different things and da, 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 da. And Monica, you correct me if I'm wrong, but as I've, as you told it to me, oftentimes you engage people in a set of questions that are doing that work, the people that are engaged in, to reimagine it in different ways that not only not cause pain, but call forth compassion in what is the shift change. And to me, that's a very concrete example of how you can intervene in the doing in ways that, that the, where the doing is, is um, creating a particular kind of being that in particular, this particular case is life killing, you know, and it's creating a lot of suffering and you engage people in a process where they, um, you know, they, they try it in different ways in ways that hopefully not just reduce the harm, but actually increase um you know, the resourcing of people to do it, to do it in ways that are more life-giving to them. Um, this is, this is a, a phenomenological interpretation of being, and I think it relates to eudaimonia in, in a sense that the flourishing is in the being. It's not a consequence of the action. It's in the moment. And I think, again, bringing, I thought it was quite beautiful when someone interpreted Heidegger saying that we need to relearn to think because we, we have made rationality instrumental and uh, so Stefano Zamani told us there's a different version of rationality which is expressive it's not only uh, instrumental rationality that matters but also expressive and expressive could be expressive of this life-giving so our thinking needs to return to dwelling in inside the thinking and making it situated in the moment so that we can unlock new potentialities but I think that is what we mean by wisdom. And I think what uh, Antoinette has been talking a lot about is moral imagination. So if in the process of interpreting the situation, deriving the features that are salient and identifying the options and then choosing options that make the kind of next action or next thing, thing I say more beautiful, I think that is really where the wisdom has to be installed as a process. But the affordances for anyone in a normal organization will be dictated by the infrastructure and the institutional surround. So I think the question is, what comes first? Do we unleash wisdom? If someone says, no, we cannot do budgeting anymore in a top-down fashion. Let's uh, change this here. Or do we create a different process which creates different affordances and habituate that process through the institution? I think here there the question is, no is what first. comes first. Like there is no first, <laughs> so there's there's budgeting, and, and um, we're gonna do budgeting, and so then we um, like our our intervention logic, right, is to say, well, let's look at budgeting as you're doing budgeting, right, and then let's 
use our capacity to um, see and look at our system in different ways, which might be your wisdom concept, right, coming into action, um, to say, let's ask a different question. So an organization that I worked with around the practice of budgeting, actually, um, uh, they, they, they were um, foundation, their job was to give away money. So they talk about money a lot. Um, they have to budget internal money as well as money that they were going to give away. And um, they were dissatisfied with their allocation of money. So um, as they kind of looked at how they did it, we, I said, well, what would it mean to all of you as you do budgeting to be generous to one another? And they started to talk about, does generosity have a place in budgeting? Um, and of course, they're, they're enacting a form of generosity, right? Like they're giving away money. It's their reason for their existence as an organization. But they never thought about it as related to their own practice of allocating money internally. And so they um, started budgeting in a way that uh, created the affordance that uh, every quarter as they checked in on financial results, they asked, um, is there a department that needs money? That, um, and do, does other, do, are there departments that have money to give? And so rather than, some, than the enactment in practice of a static allocation of money that had to remain the same over a calendar period of time, they tried to create in practice an ongoing question around how they could internally be more generous as they allocated their internal resources. Um, I think that's a beautiful example of um, um, in the action kind of um, using this aspirational aspect and reframing, um, of course, then in the end, the being as well. But I, um, I think um, if I would bring in wisdom, I found it, I mean, of course, that also needs wisdom, but I found it in another instance. Uh, and I bring the example from Tsukas because he's also looking at the practice view. And he brings the example of a young doctor who sees another doctor taking drugs before he's doing an operation. And then, of course, um, it's like a, an ethical-laden situation. And what is she doing now? And she's also pondering that, um, on that forever and ever. Um, and then after a few weeks, she comes to a decision. And, and of course, that is, um, I believe, one aspect where you could see practical wisdom in a messy situation where you have conflicting aspects. How are you going to change the course of action as well? And I think... I saw that maybe in your study, in, but maybe I'm wrong, in, in, this, um, in this airplane study we were talking about, where they also had to decide what are we doing now? How are we going to make sense of that situation? And maybe that will be interesting. Um, how, how, if you had to create, um, to explain to also people who maybe didn't read the study yet, hopefully going to do it afterwards, um, How is collective wisdom coming about in what you're looking at, in the practice you, you are looking at? I think you call it legitimacy question. So you have to decide about legitimacy in that moment. Well, there, that, 
in that particular situation, the most likely thing to happen was that no collective action would happen. So um, that was a really important moment for us when our theories would predict that through diffusion of responsibility and um, heightened uncertainty and you know severe emotional arousal, nothing, nothing would happen. Um, this group of people was able to organize themselves and um, create some shared sense of understanding what was happening that also legitimated um, doing something together as a group. Uh, and one, um, so the, the, this, the narrative, the story of who am I in this situation has a role, then the story of who are we in this situation, and uh, specifically the call to the pronoun we, and the, the asking or um, the collective voicing of um, a request to talk about who are we right now has a role in making the sort of bringing people together to act collectively and to figure out what that what what action to take together um, and then the interesting thing in that study so this is a hijacked airplane um, that because other planes have been hijacked the same day and people have been able to get information about that, they're fairly sure the plane will be crashed deliberately. Um, the, the, the capacity to reach out and bring in not just that information, but um, the, but, um, parts of the world that didn't necessarily seem relevant at the time, but that turned out to be really important was a part of what enabled collect, um, uh, this kind of courageous collective action. Mm -hmm. And so in the budgeting story, for instance, right, the um, people were looking at their own practice in budgeting, but then asking for like, how could we bring in some concepts, right? Um, and some things that we value in other parts of our life or other parts of our practice, um, like being generous to one another. Um, like, how could we bring them into this way of that we're doing together? And so uh, um, that I feel um, is a, I don't know if that ties to you know, ties to communities of practice and what is um, and what seems to be relevant to a given situation, and then um, you know, bringing in additional perspectives and concepts. So that seems to tie to wisdom in a way. Very nice. I think you've given us a lot to think about because it links to the discussion we had with um, Bill on on Donald Schoen and the, the self reflection on triple loop learning on resonating with regards to habituation of virtues and creating these self-reflective spaces. And I think, again, Otto Sharma always suggests that you need to create a mirror where people see themselves in the system. And that has to be kind of the, the basic starting point. But I think, Monica, what you're pointing to, infusing that with virtues 
So there's a moral connotation here that opens new potential routes for individual and, and collective redefinition or redefinition of action. I think we really need to think that through. You've given us got a, again a lot to think. Um, given that we need a wrap, do we have time for one more question or shall we go to the closure? Jane. I think we have time for one more question. One more question. So then I think we answer that. We go to the transformation and final section. How do we make this all happen? And I think you've got to, cho got to choose now. Either we ask about how do we create positive leaders or we ask how we create positive academics and institutions. Where do you want to go? <laughs> to answer the other question, because I, I feel like the thing that keeps me going, um, even though I'm retired and I'm, I can't leave it alone, is the impact on future leaders and the capacity to, um, you know, to infuse hope and, and practical wisdom about how to enter different kinds of systems and think about, I think, meaningful impact. I mean, we just, the most meaningful thing I've participated in the last 20 years is in teaching this stuff to students and watching them make use of it and stay connected to it. I mean, you know, this is in no way fixed. It's this it's, it's ongoing co-learning process, but academic institutions are too, um, too slow, too rigid, too bureaucratic, too elitist, too all that stuff. I mean, but the, to me, the, the beauty of them is they convene future people, you know, people that are going to go have impact in other institutions. And, um, you know, after teaching the core OB organization behavior management course for uh, my first 20 years and seeing, you know, that was nice and stuff, but not seeing the, um, the efficacy and the sense of, you know, grounded hope and optimism um, about, you know, about some of the differences they can make. I, I, I feel like that's where the impact can be. And I see the um, passion in people sharing um, across the globe, like how to teach this stuff and and what's happening you know that never happened in ob i mean it happened in sort of deadened ways i shouldn't say but like you know like practices that worked in terms of getting core, good course evaluations and stuff like that in core ob class but it wasn't about are you giving people ways of seeing ways of doing ways of being that are that are lighting them up and firing them up to go out and do what they're supposed to do in the world. And I can tell you that this perspective, um, as I as I have had the privilege of teaching with Monica and with other people, but also just, you know, I have weekly meetings with people who are teaching this all over the place. And it is so alive and dynamic and I think making a difference. Um, so that's where, I, but in terms of changing academic, academic institutions, I don't have a lot of hope, unless, unless they're newly born academic institutions. Like Otto Scharmer, there's a reason he's not in MIT. He's outside of it, because if you're in it, you know, the, the structures are totally paralyzing in terms of making a sustained, meaningful difference, in my opinion. Um, I am not hopeful about Those that. people who we have heard from academia would suggest that's exactly kind of where they are. Now, I would say, I mean, 
you, you know that Antoinette has been waiting for this interview for a very long time. And I, I, I would like to just add to it. It's been really beautiful to have both of you. The passion and the compassion that you both display even during this conversation is, is awesome. And um, so a big, big thanks for entertaining this dialogue with us. And maybe we had a little quiz, but in the spirit of time, can I ask um, you to maybe close the session for us? Is there, if, the, if there are leaders who are listening to us now, is there one piece of advice, suggestion, recommendation, kind of uh, one thing you want to shout out there to them to close off or anything that has come up that we haven't said during this conversation? Um, Monica and Jane, any final words to the listeners? What, what, would, you, what would you suggest? such a big question I, I I mean the thing I would would say is to simultaneously hold the reality that we are in big trouble broadly defined um, and we are causing harm all of us and yet on the other hand human beings are extraordinary and they have extraordinary capacities individually and collectively and together i feel like together as in dialogue and in you know experimental collective action or action i mean you know, um we could do amazing things i mean look at the people in ukraine right now i mean just watch what's happening there you know where to me that's both that's holding both i think we've got a lot to learn by opening our eyes and and witnessing and trying to understand things that are happening around us so that's what i would say monica about how about you you can have the last word monica well i do think that those capacities of organizing and the spaces where courageous collective action happens in, in what seems like the unlikeliest of circumstances are just invitations to wonder at, as Jane said, the extraordinariness of humanity. At the same time that what doing so much research and teaching about compassion has taught me um, is that the you know, suffering is the doorway in and that um, we can't be so enamored of the good that we lose touch with the suffering of life. And when we do that, we get in all kinds of messes. Um, and so we, using our own suffering and our call to the compassion of other people's suffering, I do think is a really important reconstituting of our um, desire to be an, in this conversation and be doing this work. And it's a, a reason why I'm so moved by the way you're asking the questions you're asking. That, that um, one of the ways the field has gotten itself into trouble is by abstracting the positive or the good from 
the suffering and the difficulty that's that keeps calling us to the work. This is immensely beautiful. And Otti asked me to close. How can I close after that? I was also um, laughing. I was touched. I was intellectually um, more than satisfied or thrilled. So um, all I can say is really thank you very much both. It was a huge pleasure for us and I'm really looking forward to bring that to the world. So that's uh, what I also would like to add. And thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good evening. You're late. <laughs> good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you.